Actually, let me begin in prayer, if I may. Sometimes my lightheartedness will even throw me off a bit. And so just as we begin, um, Lord, I want to begin by thanking you for how present and how near you are to us this day, this sense, Father, as we have given ourselves to you in song and in praise from our heart and faith, Lord, you um, are so faithful to respond to us. And this, this relationship that we have with you as a, a father to a child, Lord, how satisfying it is to our hearts and to our soul to reciprocate to one another uh, affection and care. And Lord, um, our desire is to just stay in a posture of humility this morning as we approach your word. Um, as a child to a parent, to receive instruction from our Father, to receive words of life uh, and light unto our feet, Lord, that guides us, that makes us fruitful, Lord, that keeps us and preserves us as we obediently walk those steps out. And so we pray, Lord, just as we now launch into the time of considering the truth from your word, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in us, Lord, we pray. Do the transformative work by your spirit that only you can do, Lord, that we so desperately need. And Father, may it be unto your glory. In your awesome name, amen. Amen. Well, we continue in Matthew. I've been saying it recently. We are drawing close, and yet again this week, we are drawing even closer to the culmination of Matthew's gospel. It's been a fun um, number of months. This morning, what I'm going to do is I've chosen to take a large swath of text. Um, and we're, is that funny? Swath? Yeah, that's what it is, though, Becky. It's a large swath. I'm taking a large uh, portion of text this morning because, um, as we'll see, or as, as I'm hoping to consider today together, Uh, These are three cohesive chapters in in what I believe the Lord Jesus is, uh, in what I believe Jesus has inspired Matthew to write, as Matthew has recorded and recounted the steps of Jesus Christ. And so um, these three chapters of 21 through 23, what I'm going to do is I'm I'm not going to read them, but I want to begin by just painting a picture. So you can turn in your Bibles if you'd like to because I am going to outline the three chapters quickly, put a little bit of context to them, and then we're going to delve in to um, just unearthing this kind of main theme of the morning. And so as I set the, set the scene, if you will, or paint the picture, um, I want you, for you to just kind of envision this. What we have now at this point is... Almost the pinnacle, of course, the cross is the climax of the life of Jesus Christ. But in terms of, of the, uh, the, the mission of the Lord Jesus to confront the religious authorities that he had battled throughout his years of ministry, we are reaching a climax within these three chapters. And so the emphasis or the, the poignancy of, of everything that Jesus is doing is towards this fact that he's going to confront and he's going to show himself now as the fulfillment of his Old Testament prophecy to Israel of the, the messianic fulfillment of the king now arriving. And we've seen a couple of times through Matthew, he doesn't highlight it as much as some of the other gospels. I believe it's John, um, but what they call the messianic secret. If you've heard of this, it's where Jesus would do something and then he would say, but don't tell anybody who I am. We see it, we saw it in the transfiguration when he spoke to the disciples after, after being transfigured. He says, don't share what you've seen here yet today. That's referred to as the messianic secret, this sense of Jesus not wanting or in his own timing choosing when he will reveal himself to be king. And so now here we are. In the picture that we begin with, At the beginning of Matthew 21, Jesus and this crowd, the context is this. Jesus has left the city of Jericho in chapter 20, it tells us, and he's gathering with a group, it says a large group in chapter 20, on a pilgrimage towards Jerusalem. The time is Passover, and so it was common, according to, to Jewish law, for men to travel to Jerusalem 
to pay the sacrifices, to make the sacrifices during Passover. And so it isn't just Jesus choosing to go in the sense of like, oh, it sounds like a good idea to go to Jerusalem. There's a ton of foreshadow. There's a ton of symbolism. There's all these things that are packed within this, but the picture is here's Jesus, and he's in this group of people. And it says here at the beginning uh, of chapter 21, I'm sorry, we, we're not reading it, So, but essentially what we have is when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent his two disciples. And we know the story where Jesus sends out the disciples to bring to him a donkey that he might enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And most of us who grew up in the church, we've got this picture that we grew up coloring, you know, the palm leaves and it's, and it's Hosanna, you know, blessed be the one who comes in the name of David. And oftentimes what we think is, is here's Jesus and he's come down the mountain. And it, actually, I wanted to give you a picture. It looks something like this. This is modern day. This is Mount of Olives looking towards the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus in this crowd would have crested this mountain and then he, 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 he tells his disciples to go and to retrieve a donkey that he might enter in through into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey. And so we've got this large crowd of people. And here's Jesus, the only one. He's elevated above the other. My point in this is the messianic secret time is over. Jesus now is intent on revealing himself as the king of Israel. And so we have this picture, and here they are coming down the mountain, and oftentimes the misconception is that the same people who were heralding Jesus were the ones days later that would cry out for his crucifixion. But that's actually not true. What we have, and we can see it because Matthew records the response of those people in 21 towards the end in verse 10. He says, and when he entered, speaking of Jesus, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So it's a different group of people as well. So I'm just throwing out some context here to give us this picture of Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives in a swarm of crowds of people all going, traveling together towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And he's on a donkey and he's elevated. Okay, so you've got this picture, right? Here we are. I also want to say this, that this is the first time that Matthew records Jesus and his disciples coming to the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. Matthew, this is the first time Matthew records this. See, Jerusalem, what is Jerusalem? What does it symbolize or what was it to Israel? It was the location of the temple, of course, which for the Jew, it was central to their earthly religion. So again, here's another symbol of Jesus is about to come in and he's about to enter into that place that was the epitome of Israel's earthly religion. This is not a mistake, of course, on Matthew's part. This is absolutely intentional because he's showing us the, 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 the objective of Jesus Christ in so doing. And in verse 29 of, of chapter 20, um, as he, he tells us again, this large crowd is coming in, and so, um, yeah, that's all, that's all. I don't need to keep repeating the same thing over and over again. So here's what I'd like to do. We've got this picture. I want to give to us Matthew 21 and 22. I apologize. I'm trying to consider how I can like squeeze a bunch of context. And I, uh, I had my, you know, I did my cue cards last night and I was like reciting it to myself and, you know, I was trying to cut it down into a certain amount of time. So I'm joking too. I don't have cue cards. Um, okay. So Matthew 21, Matthew 22. To hopefully simplify this, what I want to do is I just want to give to you guys um, kind of a broad outline of chapter 21 and 22. And what we can do is we can break them into three groups. There's three things that are revealed to us. There are actually three groups of three in chapters 21 and chapters 22. The first group is this. Here we see three important acts by Jesus Christ. These acts are, they're symbolic to both, both his authority as king as well as the judgment that will come upon the nation of Israel. So chapter 21 and verses 1 through 22, they record three symbolic acts of Jesus. They're significant in that they are symbolic of his authority, and they're symbolic of the judgment that is about to come, that he is about to bring on the nation of Israel. In addition, they're also significant in that they're confronting the earthly religious system that is in opposition 
to the eternal kingdom which he is establishing on earth. Listen, that's a very important point. The earthly religious system of Israel was in opposition to what Jesus Christ was doing, to what Jesus Christ's mission was about. And so the the three significant acts are this, his entrance into Jerusalem, which I just kind of quickly went over, found in verses 1 through 11. The exercising of his authority in the temple, we know that story really well. In verses 12 through 17, that was the second significant symbolic act. The exercising of his authority in the temple. And then the third was the cursing of the fig tree, the fruitless fig tree found in verses 18 through 22. So that's the first grouping of three that we see. The second is a grouping of three parables that's found in chapter 20, at the end of 21 and into 22. These are given in response by Jesus to the religious leaders after they question his authority, okay? So just follow me with this. He's got these symbolic acts to show his authority. His authority is then questioned, and he responds with three parables. The parable of the two sons, found in verses 28 through 32. The parable of the vineyard tenants, found in 33 through 44. And the parable of the wedding feast, found in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read them, but my intent is just to give a very quick kind of broad description, because again, I want to spend our morning looking at what I believe is a significant aspect of of what these are pointing towards. These three parables is Jesus pronouncing that Israel's rejection will become the world's gain. That's essentially what these parables are towards. And if you're familiar with the parables, that might resound in your heart a bit. If you're not familiar with them, Go back and read them, but you can write that point down, that the, the, the thrust of these, the overarching narrative of these, uh, narrative of these parables is that what Israel is rejecting becomes the Gentile our gain through Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of John 1, the gospel of John 1, right? That he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is what that speaks of. And then the third and final grouping that we find in, in chapter 22, and these are, these are chronological in how I'm presenting them. The, the, the symbolic acts come first, then come the three parables, and then come three challenges. It's almost like the religious leader's last-ditch attempt to somehow catch Jesus in a contradiction, and, and, they're, and, and they're very much worth reading under this kind of idea here, that the religious leaders are, are wanting to, first and foremost, in the question about the poll tax, that's the, the first one, he's challenged in regard to the poll tax, so his authority is being challenged in this um, interaction. The second is question about the resurrection, found in chapter 22, verses uh, 23-33. And then the third is the question about the greatest commandment, found in verses 34-40. through 40. I was thinking, you would think at this point that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have probably had enough of being made to look like the fool with Jesus, wouldn't you think? All of the interactions over all the amount of time that they've had with him, and each time they're either left speechless or being looked, made to look absolutely foolish. But here they are again, and like I said, it's almost like they're going to give it one more go, and they're thinking to themselves, hey man, he's on our home turf. We've got home court advantage right now. He's in Jerusalem. We're in the courts of the temple most likely, and let's just have at it, and let's see if we can catch him. So this first challenge is an attempt to catch Jesus in a contradiction between sovereignties. And you know it's, it's the... It contains the verse, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give unto God what is God's. It's that whole thing of of asking, you know, which one is essentially more sovereign and worth our dedication? Who is greater is the question that they're presenting in this challenge. Is, Is it Caesar? Is it the earthly system of power? 
or is it God? And, and again, this is the religious leaders. We have to keep that in mind. This isn't outsiders. These are the religious leaders that Jesus is confronting. Okay. And what's Jesus replies, why do you put me to the test? He says, you know how it's going to end, essentially is what Jesus is saying, right? Why do you continue to test me? And he says, you hypocrites. And then he says again, give me that coin. And he looks at the coin and he says, whose face is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's face, right? And so then his response is then, then great. So give him what belongs to him and give unto God what belongs to God. See, in the mind of the religious authorities, it was either one or the other. You either are going to pay homage to Caesar, dedicate your life to Caesar, or it is to God himself. And what Jesus presents to us, which now we all live within and know as a common thought is, you can actually give unto both. In the sense of we have to give unto this earthly government what belongs to them, but which one is more supreme in the life of the Christian? It is Christ. It's God. It's the sovereignty of God over our lives. Therefore, we are submitted unto God, and in submission unto God, we submit to earthly system. So that's the first challenge. It's possible to be both a dutiful citizen and a loyal servant of God, is the point that Jesus is making. And then we come to the second challenge, and there and then it's, it's funny, here's this picture. It's like the Pharisees have Adam, and he, you know, he, he beats him back. And the Sadducees are like, all right, it's our turn now. And so now the Sadducees come out for a little one-on-one on the home court. But this time what they do is they bring the ringer with them. They bring the, what they think is their ringer. They bring the Herodians along. And, and, here, and so we've got this picture too. This is really interesting. There, this coalition almost of religious authorities that have put aside their beefs with one another to come in an allegiance with each other as allies and try to work against Jesus because of what Jesus represents. Jesus represents the unseating of their place of authority and power within the earth. And they recognize this and they realize this and they're going, hey, listen, you want to get together? Let's see if we can't take him out together. We'll do a little two-on-one. So the second challenge comes from the Sadducees and it's a question in regards to the resurrection in which, ironically, the Sadducees do not believe. They don't believe in the resurrection, and what they're hoping to do is they're hoping to catch Jesus aligning himself with the Pharisees, thus marginalizing a huge section of those within the religious system. So it's like, okay, see, he's with them, and and they're hoping to to, um, bring some opposition towards him in that way. But again, Jesus catches them in their own Web and essentially he chastises them for not understanding the nature of the resurrection life. And having made it analogous to the present life on earth. In other words, they haven't understood the very thing that they've taught. They've misunderstood the nature of scripture or the, the truth of scripture as it pertains to the nature of resurrected life. And then the third challenge comes in again and the Pharisees go, okay, They're like, man, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. All right, we'll try one more time. But this time we're going to bring our seven foot five center. He weighs 350 pounds and it's this lawyer and he's super smart. And so the Pharisees are going to try at it again, but this time they just launch the one guy at him. And this one guy is representative of the whole Pharisee group once again. And this third challenge, this is the challenge as it pertains to the question of the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? You know, I've done all of these things. To which, of course, we're familiar with this. Jesus reduces the entirety of the law and the prophets. He says, writing, uh, the prophets writing to this truth that love is an essential to the life of a disciple of the new king and the new kingdom. It's all about love. It's loving God and it's loving one another. He just reduces and he says, it's, it's basically that all of this is contains within it the law and the prophets. So this then, this is chapters 21 and 22, and then in 23, and this is kind of where I'm moving towards, and I hope this has not been too confusing for you all. Again, it's, it's kind of hard to take 
so much that you could probably spend an entire day just talking about his entrance into Jerusalem, just talking about his authority in the temple, right? And what I'm hoping to do here is paint this picture of cohesion between all three chapters. And as we move into chapter 23, it's kind of the final act here. And it begins with Jesus addressing the crowd. And we're going to read this together. And it says that he addresses the crowd and his disciples. And I want you guys to recognize that. And then he ends chapter 23 with the pronouncement of the woes against the Pharisees and the scribes. And so he turns his attention from the people, from the disciples, from the crowd, and he turns it to the Pharisees at that time. And he just says, man, this and this and this and this and this, this is what I have against you. So open your Bibles, if you've not already, to Matthew 23, and we're going to read a portion of this text. Is this okay? Am I, are you guys following this okay? Okay, if, you, if for some reason I lost you, would you just come and see me afterwards and I'll, I'll try to clarify it. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. But do not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor and feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, he says. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then as I said, from 13 through the uh, verse 36, he presents this series of uh, woes against the, the scribes and the Pharisees. But it's within these 12 verses that we just read that And Jesus is warning the indictment that he's addressing to the crowds and his disciples is upon the the religious establishment. And it's rushing towards this climax of woes, which he presents in a moment. Also, too, don't miss the significance of who he's speaking to. As I said a minute ago, he's speaking to both the crowd and the disciples. And he's warning them. He's warning them of the works of the religious system. He's speaking to the pilgrims who traveled for Passover. And he's saying, listen, he's speaking to us. In other words, Jesus is speaking to us as his disciples, as those who are apart. Be forewarned. This is what the religious heart does. This is what a religious spirit causes. This is what is in opposition to the kingdom of God. This is what I have come to overthrow. It's here, it's thought that it's possible at this time during Passover that the population of Jerusalem could have increased by almost as much as 500%. We're talking almost tens of thousands, possibly even tens and tens of thousands of people that have ascended. So imagine just the the size of the crowds that are coming in and going out and the the mass amounts of people that Jesus is speaking to at this time, religious observers who they themselves are at risk of falling into the same cycle, the same chains and bondage that the Pharisees and the Sadducees themselves were in. See, the the issue is not religious observance. The issue is not an obedient, submitted heart to God. The issue is not uh, the fear of the Lord God. 
That's not what Jesus is addressing. What the issue it's, is the, one of the greatest hindrances that still exists to this day for all men and women that we still battle, that Paul had to address throughout his New Testament letters. That's the pride of the religious heart. That is what this is about. That is what Jesus is pointing towards. That is what, that is what Jesus' mission was to eliminate at this moment. Pride of the religious heart. For the religious heart not only seeks righteousness through strict observance of religious works, but listen, it unduly condemns and binds the conscience of those around them. That's what the religious heart, that's what the pride of a religiosity does. It condemns, and he says that. You heap upon them burdens which they cannot bear and you bind them up. And there's three things that Jesus, that Jesus condemns them for in this passage. And he's saying to us, listen, don't be like these people. Don't be like them. That's the word to us today. Do not be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who find their piety through their works and who heap upon others burden upon burden which are unbearable when I have made you free. When I have rescued you from bondage and brought you into freedom and you turn and place bondage back upon others. So three things he calls out as being in opposition and a hindrance to entrance into the kingdom of God. The first is this, it's hypocrisy. He calls them out for hypocrisy. He says this, they preach, but they do not practice. Very simple, doesn't need a lot of explanation, right? They preach, but they don't practice. The religious heart preaches, but it doesn't practice. It doesn't do the very thing it says that it ought to do. See, this is the core of it. This lies at the very center of this prideful heart. It's, and, and it's the broader indictment that Jesus brings into Israel as well. And it's not now at this point just the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it's the whole nation of Israel that is in sight for Jesus. Having an appearance of fruitfulness, which is the condemnation of the fig tree, having an appearance of fruitfulness. That tree that Jesus curses, it says that it's not in season to be bearing fruit, but yet the tree was full of leaves. It, so it was symbolic of having this appearance of being a fruitful tree, but yet bearing no fruit. And so Jesus curses it. That is at the core of the religious heart, the hypocrisy and what does he say? He'll say later in chapter 23, towards the end in the woes, he says, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are dead people's bones in uncleanliness. That was the religious heart. So hypocrisy was the first. The second thing that he calls them out on in this chapters, in verses one through, through uh, 12 is condemnation. And I said it just a moment ago, and he says, they tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. See, the Pharisees added laws and added traditions to the law of God. And they elevated those laws and traditions to the same place of God's law that they had given. They robbed people of their freedom. And they placed chains back upon them when God had already made them free. And what does Jesus say earlier in Matthew? He warns of that. And he says what? That it would be better for them if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were cast into the sea rather than causing another one to sin. That's the pronouncement that Jesus makes on those who place upon others burdens that are not bearable. Burdens that... He never intended to be placed. This is what the religious heart does. This is the pride of the religious heart that Jesus is confronting. And I was thinking of this too. In terms of this condemnation, there's no end to the cycle of condemnation. You might find yourself free from one, but there sits then a long list of the next 200, 500 things that need to be done one right after the other. It, it never ends. This heaping upon heaping upon heaping, there's no end 
to this religious heart and what it creates. And then the third thing he says is pride. And he says that they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. And he lists a handful of things that they, that they do in visibility. One, the first one is verse 6, that pride seeks visibility. Pride wants to be seen. Pride wants to be acknowledged. Pride wants to be commended. Right? And then in verse 7, pride seeks acknowledgement. They do all of these deeds to be seen by others. See, this whole issue of pride, this is the root of sin. This is where it all begins. That the elevation of man to a place of honor where only God ought to be. Whether it's the intent of our hearts or the actions that we engage in, if they have this place of needing to be visible, of needing to be acknowledged, of needing to be commended for, then all we are doing is elevating our place to the only place where God alone should sit and receive the glory. Again, we're talking about our own hearts. We're talking about living as a believer in God and the tendency of these things to grab our hearts and how easily it sways us. And of course, we're reminded of Paul's letter to the Galatians, right? Having begun like this, you've now gone back into this. See, we fight these things. This is why this is important for us today. Because this sense of wanting to do what is right, this sense of wanting to please God and or please others, this sense of wanting to appear as having it together or of being holy and righteous, that is a strong pull. We fight it in our human flesh but it's the very thing that pulls us into this prideful religious heart. And the warning is that be careful because it brings condemnation. It brings pride and it brings hypocrisy. So what then, in light of this, how do we battle this? How do we fight this? I mean, this isn't, this isn't a word for the unbelieving heart. This is a word for us this morning, and I, I hope that I'm communicating it well because it's, this isn't to condemn us. This is to warn us. This is to encourage us to be diligent. This is to remind us what stands in opposition to the kingdom of God. All that we have been talking about of what it means to live as a, 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 um, a citizen of God's kingdom heavenly kingdom here on earth. This stands in opposition to that. The significance of what Jesus was doing in chapters 21 through 23 cannot be understated as it pertains to him tearing this down, doing away with it and pronouncing himself as king, showing himself as king, showing himself as the fulfillment. And again, as I said, there's so much within these three chapters of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled and symbolism, the fulfillment of foreshadowings and, and all, the, and, and all the, the significance of what Jesus is doing. But, but as it stands for us today, as it stands for the, the war that we wage in our own hearts, I think this is vitally important for us. I mean, listen, I can fall prey to it myself, standing here before you, wanting to appear like, I've got it all together. I know everything that I'm talking about within Scripture. You know, I've read the Greek text and I can expound on the whole thing. That's like baloney. I stand with as much humility as you stand today. But being called by God to function in this way, to bring the word and to instruct this church and to lead this church into truth. But listen, we have to stay in a place of humility. We have to stay in a place of dependence and recognition of our need of God in our life. Because as soon as we have stopped recognizing our need, we elevate ourselves to where God ought to be as somehow being able to fulfill that need. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, I'm saying a lot of the same thing in just many different ways. But let me give you this, because as I studied this this week and as I thought about these three chapters and, and the way that they were going and what Jesus was addressing, I also found within them an encouragement 
on the flip side of the coin of everything that Jesus did in those, those three, threes of three, those three acts and the three parables and the three challenges, I found within it new creation kingdom life. And I want to point that and I want to highlight that to you because this is what we live in today. And so if we struggle in, this, in some semblance of any of these areas of, of, of this religious obligation, this trying to find a, a, to achievement and recognition and favor in God's sight or one another's sight through the things that we do to combat that are some beautiful truths that Jesus himself speaks to us. So I want to just take the last few minutes and I want to pull them out and look at them together. And I'm going to give you six things. And there's six, but I'm not going to just give you 10 minutes per six. Don't worry, okay? I'm just going to hit them here for you. And I want you to, again to think about them in light of what I've said. So, we know what Jesus is opposed to, right? I've just spent this whole time talking about it. But what does the kingdom of God promise? What does life as the new creation through Jesus Christ embody and exhibit as it pertains to defending ourselves from the pride of this religious heart? I would say this too, just as a side note warning. This is a spectrum that we live on. On the one end... Let's see, this is my right, your left. I'm going to start over here. On the one end, you've got this prideful religious heart that I've spoken of, but be warned, there's a whole other trapping to fall into on the other end, and it's called license. It's called, and there's, there's a whole doctrinal word behind it that's called antinomianism, which basically elevates grace far above law and says that the law is not useful in areas of our life as much as grace is. And my warning to us today is this, is let's find our healthy spot on this spectrum of somewhere in between, okay? Let's not reject this so far that we find ourselves operating outside of God's moral compass and somehow just in our own of like, it's all about grace. I do what I want because God forgives. I live the way I want because, man, the grace of God covers day after day after day. You guys get what I'm saying, okay? All right. That was a freebie. So six things that we can and ought to strive to live with in grace, which combats the sinful religious heart and keeps us free to live rightly before Jesus Christ. They're embodied in the acts and the words which, which, of Jesus, which I mentioned earlier as he addresses the Jewish religious authorities. But together they represent a holistic approach to New Testament Christian living. When we, when we pursue these things, when they're active in our life, we find fruitfulness, and that fruitfulness simultaneously combats this religious spirit. So it's like, it's a, it's a twofer. We're growing in maturity, and we're combating the things that are actually not of God. So the first is this. We are heralds of the king. And I want to draw your attention back to the very first symbolic act that Jesus did when he presented himself as king coming down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And what did that swarm, large crowd of, crowd of people that, the, that was most likely getting bigger and bigger the closer they got to Jerusalem? What were they doing? Hosanna. Yes. They were crying out. They were heralding the coming king. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, listen. The declaration of Jesus as king pronounces him as Lord to the unbelieving as well as our own hearts. When we're focused in this way where our efforts and our enthusiasm are to the declaration of Jesus as king, we simultaneously are fending off in our own hearts this place that wants to elevate us to some prominence, right? Right? <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so we're heralds of Jesus the King. The second is this, the intolerance of temple desecration. This is what I mean by that. When Jesus came in, the second symbolic act is what? He goes in and it was the money changers it was, the, it was the desecration that he perceived to be taking place within the temple courts. 
this ungodly act, and what did he do? In his authority, he overthrew them and he cast them out. There's no rightful place for desecration like this to take to happen within the temple grounds. Paul says to the Colossian church, a well-known verse that we often quote, put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. Do not allow the desecrations in your earthly temple to exist and to perpetuate. But in the authority that God has given in us, to us by his spirit, we cast those out. He himself, as we mature, he himself, as he confronts, those desecrations are made known to us. We know what I'm talking about, right? When I say desecrations, all the, the things, the sinfulness that we allow into our hearts and into our minds and our bodies. Pick one, pick two. We all have them. But when we are willing to acknowledge them and when we, in grace, ask the Lord for the victory that is ours by his Spirit to help us rid ourselves of these things. And as we continue, see these, these, they coincide with each other. As we continue to declare who he is to others and to ourselves, we're fighting off this religious heart. Don't tolerate the things that desecrate your temple, you guys. Don't tolerate them, just as Jesus didn't tolerate them. He overthrew, he drove out the evil in our hearts when he triumphed over sin through the cross. So don't let the money changers come back in again. Keep them out where they belong, outside. The third is this, and it's also seen in that first of three the third symbolic act where he curses the fig tree. Bear fruit. Be fruit bearers. See, as I said, the curse of the fig tree was the appearance of fruitfulness when there was none. But now through Jesus Christ, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, his ever-present spirit within us, we've been called into a life of fruitfulness. We've been promised. We've actually been instructed that there is visible fruit which comes from the indwelling of the Spirit of God. We all learned the song when we were kids growing up in Sunday school. That's the promise of God, that we would not be fruitless, that his intention is for us to not only be fruitful in our character, but fruitful in our good deeds. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2, that there are deeds that we were created to walk in by God. And he's called us into that. And listen, what is that? How is that that it fends off the religious heart? Because it's submitted to something. It's submitted to someone. And that someone is God himself. So the promise of fruitfulness comes not because we are just diligent to, you know, to, to be good Christians. The promise of fruitfulness comes because he's given his spirit to us and he tells us that there's fruitfulness that we are to live within, that he's already predetermined for us. So thankful to God that he not only makes the way, but he provides the means. He shows us the objective, and he tells us how we're going to get to the end. He provides every bit of coursework for this life and navigation. So the fourth the fourth thing that we ought to strive to live within by grace, which I believe combats the sinful and the religious heart, is this, give to God what is God's. I spoke a little bit on this last week. New creation life is giving back from the abundance of what he has given to us. I don't think, I mean, that's like, you should get a tattoo if you're into that and tattoo that on your arm or on your leg or somewhere visible that we are to give from the abundance that we've received. It's so stinking, flipping easy to forget of the abundance that we have. I'm not talking about material abundance, but that, you could start there. I'm talking about the abundance of blessing that is ours because of God's love, faithfulness, and grace, mercy, provision, and on and on and on that is always towards us and always for us and chocked full of promises through his word. And so as I said, I spoke on this last week, but we are to be conduits. 
We are not to be these, these um, cisterns that just collect abundance. Man, like, let's open that full port and let that roll through us. Got any plumbers in here? Put a nice little hose bib on it, three-quarter turn valve, pop that baby open. Boom, we're off to the races. No plumbers, huh? See, I thought working all those years in the plumbing shop, there was going to be some translation over here, but I guess not. My, all my analogies are going to fall on dead ears, except for Jamie. Refine, all right, good. Okay, good. We've got a, a quorum of minority. Give to God what is God's. Paul's hymn of praise in Romans 11.35, he says, Who has first given to God that God should repay him? What a great question to just sit and ponder, you guys. There's a heart check right there. You watch hockey, and they just do that, that check. That's what that is. That's a spiritual heart check right there from the Lord. Who has given to God that he should repay him? And then Paul goes on, and, and here is the right heart posture. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And what is it? To him be the glory forever. That is the posture of the heart, you guys. That is a posture of humility. That is a posture of submission. That is a posture of understanding and knowing our place, of what he's done, of who we are, of how he has secured us, that we might say in response, to him be the glory forever. There's nothing greater, I don't know, that would be so effective in just, again, combating this tendency of sinfulness in our hearts to supplant the place of God in our lives. So be heralders of Jesus the King. Bear fruit, give to God what is his. The fifth one is this. Understand the newness of new creation life. Hang with me here for a second. I spoke on this back when I taught out of Matthew chapter 9. See, the religious leader's fault was not that they didn't know Scripture. It was that they didn't understand it rightly. So there was an understanding. There's a knowledge without understanding, okay? New creation life, and this is the point, is not only different, but it's better. There's a betterness to this new life that we live. We looked at this in, in Matthew 9 when I spoke on the fact that it's, it's superior to this new life that we live, it far exceeds the old. It replaces the old way of living and the old life. And it replaces the old way of thinking. So to grow in this means to grow in the application of our lives of all the ways that Jesus is better in us and for us. So to understand the supremacy of this new life, not in a, I mean, I know you... You know I'm not saying it, but I'll say it anyway. Not in a, like, we're better than way, but that God is better in us. And the result then is to grow in these ways that all the things that God does and how they are better for us is to grow in an understanding of the newness of the new creation life. Does that make sense? And if you want to go back to, to that Months back when I taught on Matthew 9, I delved into that whole idea of the word new and how in using it, it actually has such a really profound effect for our life. So to grasp this is to walk in the betterness. So to grasp this, this is the point, is to walk in the ways that the new creation life is better. To understand this. The... the the scripture that comes to mind is, is the writer of Hebrews when he says that it's the new, the new and the living way that Jesus Christ has gone forward in. The new and the living way. I mean, how much better is that way that Jesus made for us? It's the best. It's the best. It isn't just different, it's better. Thank God Jesus' way wasn't just different but it was better, right? So again, put it in the context of what we're fighting off here, this tendency in our own hearts 
I'm up against it. Let me give you the last one. This is found in the, 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 thir- the third of the challenges. I'm sorry. Number four was found in, in the first of the challenges. Give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, right? So give to God what is his. The fifth came in the, in the whole, um, uh, the, the Sadducees in the resurrection and uh, that challenge that they made to him of not understanding the true nature of resurrection life was, was Jesus' uh, reply. And then the third is um, found in the third challenge. So I'm just trying to draw that correlation for you. Okay. Live for God and live for others. Live for God and live for others. Very simple principle, but yet has very impacting results. And I would say this, I think it's rather fitting that the final point faces outwards. Guys. And I've been saying this too, the gospel doesn't end with us. The gospel begins with us and flows outward. And there has to be this continual outward-facing nature to our thought process and to our lives itself. Like being the herald of a king, when we live with love for God and with love for our fellow man, our pride is minimized and kept in check. This tendency to elevate ourselves is minimized. But why? Because there's no time. There's no space. I'm too busy living to give God the glory and living to tell you about the glory that I've been given by him. But see, this is the difference, is where heralding ends, I believe this continues. See, it seeks the welfare of others through our heralding. It extends beyond just speaking, but now it pursues the object through which it's being spoken to. Make sense? It, this outward focus seeks to establish peace through love and harmony through humility. So there's an actual goal beyond just the pronouncement of Jesus as king, but now I see the object of which that is being pronounced to, and I begin to pursue the application of that pronouncement, which is peace, which is establishing and speaking of the reconciliatory reconciliatory nature of God's act through Jesus Christ on their behalf. And the gospel then is brought into view, etc., etc., This is true gospel living, I believe, for God and for others towards God. Living for God and living for others towards God. See, where Jesus came to confront, and this is important, I'm going to end with this point because it's right at it. Where Jesus came to confront and remove a system of thinking and living, he also came to establish a new one. And that's so important. He doesn't want to just tear down or have us tear down, he wants to replace. He wants to put in place right thinking, right actions. Healthy, God-honoring, God-focused, God-pointing life. A new heart posture that rightly reflects his kingdom and thus his character as as a true loving God, as a savior of the world, as Emmanuel, God with us and with the world. I hope this was clear. And I would just say, as we stand together, um, would you please stand? Yeah. I would just say this, man, as always, I I always have this this culmination in my heart at the end of speaking that there's two things that are necessary for this. The first is faith and the second is grace. And both have been given to us by God for this life. But as we focus ourselves on these things and we are allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us perhaps about areas in our life, you need those two elements to walk this out. Faith and grace. And God has given a measure of both to live accordingly. Amen?